welcome everyone to another episode of Streaming Water Podcast. I'm your host, Blair Corning. And on this episode of the show, we have Taylor Winchell with Denver Water and Jeff Deems with ASO to talk about the uh, Airborne Snow Observatory Project and specifically the what they're doing in Colorado with uh, measuring snow uh, by airplane. So thanks for being here, Taylor. Thanks for being here, Jeff. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks, Blair. Yeah, great to be here. Great. Well, I uh, I saw a presentation that Taylor did uh, on this, and I wanted to to do an episode because it was it was interesting. It had all things exciting to me: water, airplanes, data. Like it it was all of it. So I'm glad you guys are on today. Why don't uh, Why don't we start out? And uh, Taylor, you can go first. Just kind of introduce yourself, what you do every day, and and how you got to where you are. Yeah, so I'm um, Taylor Winchell with Denver Water. I work on climate change adaptation and water resource planning at Denver Water, which is, you know, really planning Denver Water for the long term and preparing us for the changes that we're already experiencing with climate change and the changes that we will uh, continue to experience in the in the decades to come here. <clears throat> How I got here, um, you know, I was studying uh environmental engineering in college and kind of had that classic story where i took a class with a hydrologist who was an amazing professor and kind of uh became a mentor of mine and really realized that water is yeah that thing that kind of touches all um scientifically and and engineering wise as well um so and i also had an interest in kind of historically in ecology and really saw water as a again a, a good kind of unifying thing to to study both ecology and then and then natural resources and so I just kind of kept stumbling forward with that I ended up doing a master's at CU Boulder um, in snow hydrology actually uh, and then uh, took a couple a couple different jobs after that and ended up here at Denver Water and uh been a great place to be and learning about all the water supply issues both of Colorado and the western U.S. and around the world and it's really exciting to be working with this airborne snow observatories project and uh, really kind of revolutionizing how we're able to work with snow data which is the most you know snow is our most important water resource here in Colorado. Yeah cool what do you uh, what do you do when you're not uh crunching water data and, and collecting it. What do you do in your free time? Uh, all the classic Colorado things, or most of them at least, you know, backpacking, hiking, biking. Um, and uh, I like to play music and, and do some some creative writing on the side as well. Cool. Great. How about you, Jeff? What uh, What's your background and, and what do you do uh, with the Airborne Snow Observatory? Yeah, uh, you know, somewhat similar to Taylor, uh, a mix of uh, of personal interest and and uh, college and grad school background got me into this into this field. Um, did my undergrad at, at CU Boulder um, and had an eye opening snow hydrology class that really alerted me to not only the importance but how cool uh, mountain snowpacks are, just in terms of of how complicated and variable they are. Uh, lived in a few ski towns uh, and kind of uh, working to ski and getting into backcountry skiing, got pretty fascinated with avalanches. That got me into grad school, 
um, and kind of expanded that interest to include snow hydrology. During my PhD work, I got to work with uh, one of the first uh, LIDAR or laser scanning data sets of, of a mountain snowpack and, um, and did some kind of early work demonstrating the utility of that measurement and then, uh, or that measurement type. And after uh, another decade or so of, of academic research, um, helped get uh, the Airborne Snow Observatory off the ground at NASA. Uh, and then about three years ago, we transitioned that out of NASA to, to ASO Inc., uh, where I'm the co-founder. Uh, so yeah, nowadays I get to, to mesh two of my favorite things, uh, uh, shooting lasers at snow and, uh, and skiing. Um, which uh, turns out to be kind of two parts of our uh, of the work that we do at ASO. Nice, yeah. It sounds like, uh, like I say, this this project involves all the cool things in Colorado. So uh, that's why it's uh, it seems exciting to me. So maybe just getting into it, and I'll and I'll just throw these out there. I think these are more for, uh, well, these could be for either of you, but I know you know you have a good background as a co-founder of the Airborne Snow Observatory, but can you go into what, what is that? What's Airborne Snow Measurement and why is it, uh, why is it done? Why is it important? Yeah, great question. So, you know, as Taylor mentioned, the mountain snowpack is our major water resource in the Western United States uh, and elsewhere around the globe. Um, and keeping tabs on how much water is in our mountains in the form of snow is a key component towards effective water management uh, for all of the human uh, and natural systems that that depend on that resource. Our, the, the conventional way that we keep tabs on the Mount Snowpack is through a series of manual and, and automated station measurements that are scattered around the mountains. And it's kind of one dimensional. They provide a, a continuous measurement in time, but not a, not a comprehensive inventory of the amount of water stored in the snowpack. We've developed this technology using uh, airborne uh, laser and hyperspectral imaging. I can get into what those involve. Uh, measurements uh, that really provide that full wall-to-wall, -wall, full watershed picture of uh, the mountain snowpack, in particular, the amount of water stored as snow. Combined with the, the existing station measurements, this gives us a much more comprehensive picture of what that water resource is and supports a resilient and robust water management infrastructure going forward into our, our changing climate. So this uh, this technology with the laser laser measurement by plane, have you found it's it's more accurate than other other methods? And if so, like what uh, what kind of accuracy have you seen? You know, ground truthing it against what actually comes in a a reservoir. You know, comes down the mountainside. Yeah, so it's it's not only uh, extremely accurate, but it is it is spatially comprehensive. So uh, we with uh, the LIDAR system basically makes an elevation map, a higher, highly accurate, high resolution elevation map. We do that multiple times, once when there's no snow, and again, when there is snow, the subtraction of those elevation gives us uh, a snow depth measurement. So we get a snow depth every 10 feet everywhere throughout the watershed. So it's really this comprehensive picture. Um, those measurements are accurate to um, five centimeters or better vertically. So that's, you know, a couple inches or, or usually better than that uh, when compared to, to station and manual measurements. 
We combine that with um, with a, a model that simulates the snow density. That's verified again by those same station measurements. Um, and the combination of those two gives us the water equivalent. Getting from a water equivalent to runoff, there's a number of other processes involved, uh, processes like infiltration into soils, uh, evapotranspiration from, from trees and other vegetation, sucking up that water and, and putting it into the atmosphere um, and, and so on. Uh, so we get some fraction of that total snow volume as runoff. Uh, and uh, that those other things vary year to year too. The soil moisture is different depending on what happened last year uh, and and the, the vegetation health, et cetera, all impact uh, what fraction or the runoff efficiency of that snowpack. And, but by starting from an accurate snowpack volume, we can better constrain those other components to get to uh, a, a better estimate of runoff. Taylor, uh, what, what do you think about all this? Yeah, just to put that in perspective to, you know, like what we always talk about in the Colorado water community, the Western water community is that here in the Western US, the snowpack is our largest reservoir. You know, we hear that thrown out all the time and how we talk about water. The thing is, historically, we haven't been able to measure actually how much water is in that reservoir. Um, so we have this amazing network of stations, um, primarily snowtail stations, uh, which are great. I'm a huge proponent of snowtail stations. I think we should continue to, you know, uh, fund and expand the snowtail network moving forward. Um, but we also, you know, need to recognize the limitations of information that network provides. So, you know, that provides us measurements at points point locations in watersheds, um, which are useful index values to compare to what those points look like in the past, but <clears throat> they don't necessarily give us that measurement of how much water is actually in the snowpack across an entire watershed. And that's really where ASO comes in. And ASO actually leverages the Snowtail network to help confirm um, and do ground truthing of their measurements. So it's really, uh, you know, these networks are working together and then ASO kind of fills in the details in between. So it's unfortunate because a podcast is not a, the best medium to, to talk about ASO because really what you get with ASO are these amazing pictures where you see this detail of the snowpack across an entire watershed. Um, and you can see, you know, ski runs in a ski resort, you can see avalanches. And then most importantly for water management, what it provides is that volume of water of actually how much water is in that snowpack or in that reservoir. And then water managers can use that to make operational decisions. And so you can imagine like, you know, all of our major reservoirs that, that are not the snowpack. So you can think in Colorado, you know, like Dillon Reservoir, uh, Blue Mesa, um, and then, you know, insert any reservoir you want and then expand to Lake Powell, Lake Mead, um, down south on the river. Imagine if someone said tomorrow that they were going to take the measurement devices off of those reservoirs so we wouldn't know how much water is actually in those. So that's historically how we've been operating with the snowpack. We haven't had a measurement of how much water is actually in that reservoir. And now we have a way to actually measure that. And that's just invaluable information for the water management community. Yeah, that is uh, incredible. So the snow tell, is that just 
you know, folks on cross backcountry skis go on and putting a, a measuring stick into the snow, or is that is that what we're talking about going from there to to monitoring the whole watershed with a plane? So the, the Natural Resource Contra- Conservation Service, uh, or NRCS, which is part of the Department of Agriculture, they maintain uh, two different measurement types. One is called a snow course, which is a manual measurement, and the other is called snow tell, which stands for snow telemetry, and it's an automated station. So the snow course uh, measurement literally involves taking a core sample of the snowpack. There's a tube uh, known as a Mount Rose sampler or a federal sampler that uh, folks will run out on, on skis or snowshoes uh, into the backcountry, plunge this thing into the snowpack, remove a core, and weigh it uh, on a scale. And that tells them uh, how much water is there in the form of snow. Um, these measurements have been made for a long time. Uh, the longest running snow course in the United States uh, is on Mount Rose, Nevada, uh, which started in 1910. Um, and so those data sets uh, provide this really long-term record uh, of snow accumulation on a monthly interval throughout the snow season at many locations around the West. Starting in the 1970s, uh, the Snowtel network uh, uh, began to, to be installed by NRCS, and those primarily use what we call a snow pillow, which is like a bladder of antifreeze that sits on the ground uh, and the snowpack accumulates on it and compresses that antifreeze and and they measure the pressure that's inside that that pillow. And so it's in effect a a, a liquid scale uh, also weighing the snowpack there and reading out in in units of water equivalent. Um, So that really builds on that, that longer term manual snow course record. And now there's uh, close to a thousand uh, of these Snowtel automated stations throughout the Western United States, um, which sounds like a lot, except that what that means over the wide Western United States is that you're lucky to have one of those station measurements in your watershed. Many times there isn't one. Some some watersheds have several. Um, but either way, it's basically like looking at your, your 4K high-def television and only lighting up, you know, four or six pixels on it and trying to figure out what show you're watching. Um, So while you have a continuous record in time, which is extremely important, we're not, we're missing that spatial component. And that's where we can come in making the airborne maps and really helping build out both that continuous in time and spatially complete view of the mountain snowpack. Nice. Yeah, maybe uh, Taylor. Maybe you know this, but like I know in spring, like what? How much difference is there between like dry snow and wet snow, or how much moisture can snow? Does it generally hold about the same amount? Does it vary widely? I know in spring you get those wet snows breaks all the trees. Some of the times it's dry. I, I don't even know my question here, but what's the difference in moisture in snow? Yeah, it varies widely, both in time. So as the snowpack season progresses from winter through spring and then also in space um, across a watershed you know even 10 feet to your right 10 feet to your left it could be really different so you know generally when snow initially falls it's it's less dense it's kind of that lighter fluffier snow um, that you that you might think about that that ski that snow you want to ski initially Um, and then as the season progresses it starts to compact 
melt a bit um, and it densifies through the season. Um, and it's huge. You know, you get really big differences. So um, as the season progresses and then again throughout spatially throughout the watershed. Um, so that's why it's important to combine the depth of the snow with actually what the density of the snow is, um, because just measuring the depth of the snow uh, doesn't actually tell you how much water is in that snowpack. If you were to just melt that snow down, you need the density as well. And Jeff could put, you know, Jeff thinks about this day in, day out every day, and I'm sure he could add some good, good uh, commentary here as well. Yeah. yeah, you've, you've, you've got it there, Taylor. I, you know, um, we have one thing going for us, I think, in this in this measurement um, process, and that is that both the depth and the density, so depth times density gives us the water equivalent, which is what we're really after. Both the depth and the density vary strongly across space and through time, but depth varies more. In fact, quite quite a lot more. The biggest component of the variation in the water equivalent of the snowpack across the landscape comes from variation in depth. And we're measuring that directly and very accurately. There's some residual uncertainty in our estimation of snowpack density, um, which again, we use a model uh, to, to simulate that. And then we tie it to the measurements uh, at a snow tail locations or, or snow courses or other manual measurements. Um, but the fact that the density varies much more smoothly across the landscape than depth does gives us an advantage uh, to, to making an ac accurate water equivalent uh, map for a full watershed. All right. That is uh, yeah, that's interesting. Can you take us, you, you mentioned LIDAR, which uh, I don't know if that's an acronym or uh, you mentioned lasers. Maybe just take us through some of the technology uh, that you use, how you how you measure the snow from the bottom of an airplane and measure the depth and, you know, just take us through some of the technology. I think it's, it's fascinating. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I, you know, I, I shooting lasers at snow. I feel, I always joke that if we had sharks involved, we'd hit the trifecta for all of the coolest things. Right. But yeah. um, the, uh, uh, the LIDAR or laser scanner, uh, LIDAR stands is a, is a pseudo acronym for light detection and ranging it kind of riffs on radar, which is, a, we use that as a, just a, a, a verb or a noun now, but radar originally is an accurate acronym for radio detection and, and ranging. Um, so it's basically the same thing, except LIDAR uses light instead of radio waves. Um, and, and in effect, it's a fancy rangefinder. So uh, the sensor emits a pulse, a laser pulse, and times how long it takes for that pulse from the moment it's emitted from the sensor to reflect off something and come back. And because we know the speed of light, we can convert that time measurement into a range measurement. And then because we know where the aircraft is and where it's pointing because of a GPS system on board, we can convert that range measurement into an actual XYZ uh, or position in 3D space on the ground. The sensor scans back and forth with this, with this pulsed laser uh, emitting something like 500,000 shots per second. Uh, and so it's really just sweeping the entire landscape as we as we fly along. Uh, so every one of those shots gets converted into an elevation measurement. And then, uh, as I mentioned before, we we do this once when there's no snow on the ground. 
and we do it again when there is snow and we've got those, we reference those together to get, to get a snow depth. One really cool thing about the LIDAR is that it can see through the forest canopy. So different parts of each of one of those laser pulses gets reflected by different bits of the forest and ultimately the ground or the snow surface underneath it. So every time we're measuring, we're getting a picture of what the forest looks like as well as the ground and snow surface underneath the forest. Uh, and that's a big deal in a place like Colorado where we have large fractions of our watersheds and large fractions of our snowpack that are in the forest environment. And we need to be able to monitor those as well as, as the snow that's out in the open. Cool. Is that, because uh, I, I've heard of similar things, maybe not with snow measurement, but you know, with satellites, is that, uh, the, why is this better than satellites? I guess is, is my question. Yeah. So, you know, satellite is the platform, just like we're on an aircraft. And, and then the individual sensor is, is the, the measurement technology. So we can put a LIDAR system on a satellite. Um, in fact, uh, there's one operational right now called ISAT-2, uh, and it's making measurements primarily designed to keep track of the large ice sheets in the polar regions. Um, it, the challenge with, uh, with LIDAR is that you need clear skies. And when we're on an aircraft, we can, if it's cloudy today, we can wait till tomorrow uh, or whenever the next uh, the next clear sky opportunity is to, to get it in the air. If you're on a satellite locked into an orbit and it's cloudy, you got to wait till your next orbit repeat is. And depending on the satellite mission, uh, that could be um, uh, that could be a, a, a large amount of time. For example, the Landsat satellite systems that have been up. Uh, run by the USGS for for quite some time now, they have a 16-day repeat cycle. And so if it's cloudy when that thing comes over, suddenly you're on a 32-day repeat. And if it's cloudy again, you can see how the the, the distance that in time between measurements can, can get pretty extreme. Um, for active water management interests, the snowpack changes pretty fast. And so data latency and the ability to, to measure the snowpack uh, at times that are relevant for water management decisions is, is kind of a key component. So uh, we see the airborne platform as being um, pretty nimble uh, compared to a satellite system. It's also quite a bit less expensive. A satellite mission, you know, could be several billion dollars, um, uh, which would keep us flying for quite some time. Nice. Yeah, it sounds I think I need to do like a... Uh a live bit of this podcast from inside the actual airplane to really get the feel, you know, that would, that would help. But um, yeah. Can you maybe take us through like a day of, of, of monitoring, like how, how long does it take to do a whole watershed? What does it look like to get the plane up in the air and just how does, what, what's a day look like? Yeah. So we've got, we've got uh, several different teams at work. We've got our flight team, We've got our compute team and then our data uh, data products team. And because we're trying to, to generate data products within three days of collecting the data so that they're maximally useful uh, for water management decisions, all of these teams have to work in concert. So we, we're eyeballing, uh, working with our, our, our partners, uh, such as Taylor at Denver Water, uh, eyeballing when the, the optimal time for, uh, for a survey flight is. And as it, we're getting up to that date, we're looking at the weather, looking at the flight conditions um, and, and making the, the go, no go decision on whether we're going to fly that day. 
once that decision's made, um, we we try to time the flight as well so that that we're we're getting clear sky conditions and and good illumination angles if possible um, for the cameras. Um, then our flight team will get to the airport early and and get all the instruments ready, run all our ground tests, and then take off for a somewhere between a three to, to six hour flight, um, depending on the size of the watershed. Um, and once they're in the air, they get on survey and they, they're basically mowing the lawn back and forth over the watershed uh, in, in overlapping stripes of, of data on the ground. Um, so flying back and forth, back and forth, um, and collecting all this data, they're actively monitoring the, the data coming in from the instruments so they can see if there's any kind of issue, they can abandon the line and start it over again. Um, and uh, so once that, that duration's reached, either because they complete the watershed or, or we, we get low on fuel and have to go down for more, uh, they return to base. And, and then pretty shortly thereafter, grab the flight drives, run across the street to our data upload location, stuff those drives into our upload computer and upload the data to the cloud. Um, and then, it, then it's a handoff to our compute team. They're kicking off all of the, the post-processing that turns those raw data into something that looks intelligible to us um, in terms of a, an elevation data product uh, or, or radiances from our spectrometers. Once those raw products are, are, are processed, it gets handed off to, um, to our super team, we call them. They're the ones that, that turn these into snow depths and water equivalents uh, and, and snow albedos. And those are our, our final delivery products. Um, so that, that survey day, you know, it's, it's an intense period of, of observation from the aircraft goes right into an intense period of, of, um, of data processing, uh, and then a couple days worth of, of analyst time beating those data into shape to, to be our, our snow products. So we've, we've got an amazing team that, that we've developed. Uh, a lot of folks jumped ship from NASA uh, uh, when we uh, emerged to ASO Inc. about three years ago, um, which was a great vote of confidence from us for us uh, uh, and, and really a great leg up to have this really capable team with us. It, nothing, none of this happens without our crew. Yeah, it's it's interesting. The the I didn't realize it was that quick of a turnaround, or the the necessity for that quick of a turnaround to make decisions. And maybe I want to get into uh, to what decisions and a little bit of what Denver Water does with the data once they get it. But before that, uh, it's time for our mid show segment here. So I have an article, and you guys can chime in if you want, but this was super interesting to me. It's called This African Bird Superpower May Inspire a Better Water Bottle. It was written by somebody called Girl Scientist, and this is in Forbes, uh, Forbes' website. But it says, A small group of birds, the sand grouse, that dwell in Africa's forbidding deserts, have long mystified and delighted observers because they absorb and carry water in their breast feathers while flying long distances to water their thirsty chicks. So uh, a group from uh, Johns Hopkins, MIT, have solved the mystery of how these uh, sand grouse feathers can hold so much water. I'll just read this quote here. It's super fascinating to see how nature managed to create structures so perfectly efficient to take in and hold water 
lead author, systems engineer, Jochen Mueller, and assistant professor, Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering, said. So anyway, yeah, it's an interesting article. It says, uh, I guess it's just the males that have these feathers. And uh, they here's what it says. They nest in shallow scrape on the ground, located many kilometers away from water to avoid predators. So they go out in the middle of nowhere where there's no water, so there's no predators, but then the male has to go find water, soak himself, and bring water back to the chicks. Uh, and I guess their feathers have evolved into uh, great water carriers. I think there was a part. I'll read a little bit about the structure of the feathers. This is a little off topic, but it was interesting. Uh, it says, sandgrass feathers are structured differently from other birds' feathers. In the inner zone of the feather, the barbules have a helically coiled structure close to their base, and then straight extensions. The outer zone uh, lack the helical coil and are straight. Both uh, Anyway, they're different from regular bird's feathers, and uh, because of that, they can hold this water and release it easily. And this article is saying why that's uh, interesting is one of these professors proposed a water bottle with an inner feather-like structure to keep water contained, uh, you know, keep it from sloshing around when like runners are running and their water sloshing around. This would have the easily releasable feathers. There was another application too. Uh, anyway, it's just one of those examples of, of humans trying to mimic nature, you know, what nature's figured out through evolution in millions of years and trying to, trying to leverage that. So that is uh if you, if you want to check it out, it's called this African bird superpower may inspire a better water bottle in Forbes and, uh, yeah, let's get you got any comments on that. What do you think of that, Taylor? I'm just imagining all of the uh funky outdoor products that could emerge from this. Like there's like the <clears throat> shot blocks of gel that you have for energy for hiking. I'm just imagining like a a feather that you'd squeeze out the the water or something or or yeah. some jacket filled with feathers that you yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, I imagine the outdoor industry could run with this. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I'm sure they will. It, it's a. Uh, I, I love this kind of stuff. Um, you know, the the learning from nature. Nature's had, you know, millions of years of evolution to to evolve these kind of niche capacities, and we can learn from them. This one reminds me of the the folks who are looking at uh, gecko feet at micro at a microscopic level, and are designing robots that can climb walls using the that same like micro hair gecko feet style thing. You know, you never know where this will lead. The, the initial thought is, you know, same mode as as the grouse are using it to store water. Um, but who knows? Maybe if you make the feather out of a different material, it turns into a storage and purification possibility or something like you never know where something like this is going to go. I, I love yeah. it. Yeah, that is interesting, man. You might have just uh, thought of a million dollar idea. We better patent that. We better get that. You heard it here first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. Let's get back to the. Uh, Back to the topic at hand here. So, Taylor, once this this uh, ASO, you know, the plane lands, they crunch the data, they give you the data. What what is what do you do with that over at Denver Water, and what decisions are are you making with that? Yeah, we've been learning a ton from it ever since we started utilizing ASO data. We actually had our first flights, uh, did our first ASO flights in one of our watersheds uh, in 2019 above Dillon Reservoir and the Blue River watershed there. Um, 
And for those in Colorado, might remember that 2019, we got some late spring snowstorms. Um, <clears throat> and those really came primarily at like the higher elevations in the watershed. So as the snow had already been melting out, um, the snowtail stations that we were talking about earlier in that watershed were um, the majority of them had almost completely melted out. So, you know, the way we kind of talk about that is at that point, you sort of go, go blind as to how much snow is remaining in the watershed at those higher elevations above the snowtails. Um, and when ASO did a flight around this time, they were able to measure how much snow was still at those high elevations, um, that extra snow that had fallen through the season, and that we weren't able to get a good estimate of otherwise. And um, the data showed that there was still uh, something like 107,000 acre feet of water um, in the, does 107 sound right, Jeff? I think it was even 115 or something. Yeah, yeah. there um, a lot, a lot of water that we otherwise wouldn't have had a way to measure. Um, and you know, most people probably familiar with the acre feet of water that might be listening to this. But if you're not, you know, acre feet of water, it's a volume measurement. It's a how much water, uh, volume of water, a foot deep, um, and an acre in area. Um, and so there's a, you know, over a hundred thousand acre feet of water still in that watershed. And that was a lot more than we otherwise would have known. And with that, we actually adjusted our operations of the reservoir to let more water out quickly, um, basically to both capture that, that water and also avoid flooding impacts potentially downstream of Dillon Reservoir. Um, so super important information to have and directly changed our operations almost immediately so that we wouldn't exceed our, our outflow limits um, in that reservoir and on the spillway there. Um, this year, another interesting case um, in that same watershed above Dillon Reservoir, uh, we try to do a, a flight around that peak snowpack period. We call that peak SWE or peak snow water equivalent. Um, and when we when we flew that this year, we saw the ASO data showed that there was about 183,000 acre feet of snow uh, of snow water in that watershed. And if you average the snowtail stations on the day of the flight in that watershed, um, they showed a measurement that uh, let's see, we're talking about different measuring systems here, but um, if you're familiar with snowtail stations. They had about 15 inches of uh, snow water equivalent depth on average across the watershed. And if we compared back to last year when we did that same peak snowpack flight, the snowtail station showed it's almost exactly the same thing, about 15 inches of snow water equivalent um, across those stations. But that ASO flight showed 150,000 acre feet of water. So snowtail measurements showing exactly the same thing. But this year's ASO flight at that time showed 33,000 more acre feet of water. That's a lot of water um, that we otherwise, again, wouldn't have known was there. And with that, we were able to increase our outflows from Dillon Reservoir, again, to let more water in that stream. And previously, we were at like the minimum outflow from that reservoir. And then we let more water out into that stream, um, which bolsters that stream, 
you know, provides more recreational opportunities for fishing um, and things all along that sort. So, so we use that data and we, you know, make direct decisions with it on how we're operating and really moving water around our very uh, extensive and complex system that we have. And and we're still learning. You know, we're we've only been doing this since 2019, um, and there's a lot still to learn. Um, and every year we find out something new. Yeah. Do you think, you know, I know climate, uh, climate change and adaptation was part of your, your uh, area there. Do you think that you see this being more of a more key in that? And have you seen any, anything as far as climate change from the snow tell measurements or not snow tell the ASO now I'm getting mixed up. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a lot to keep straight. Yeah. We really consider this, you know, a climate adaptation, uh, technology, tools, strategy, however you want to call it. Um, you know, really, it's something that it would have been amazing if ASO technology existed 100 years ago and we had 100 years of measurements. It's something we should be doing regardless. Um, but it's just something that has even more relevance as the climate changes um, and as the snowpack is really changing before our eyes, again, year to year, decade to decade. Um, you know, the, the snowpack is something that is directly impacted by climate change, um, both from, from changes in temperature um, <clears throat> and then changes in potential changes in precipitation, how precipitation falls, when, where it falls, how snow melts. And so, you know, the snowpack is, is changing in Colorado, throughout the Western U.S. Um, and a lot of measurement systems, a lot of uh, streamflow forecasting systems, they're really based on what has happened in the past. Um, but what is it, the Yogi Berra quote, I believe, and this might be misquoting, but something like the future ain't what it used to be. Um, you know, the, the snowpack is changing and we can't rely as much on, you know, data sets from the past to understand what's happening now. And ASO data allows us to understand what's happening right now. And then, you know, if we have decades of these measurements in the future, we'll have such a better idea of how the snowpack cha changes um, moving forward. Nice. What do you say to that, Jeff? Why didn't you think of this 30 years ago to uh, Taylor's question? <laughs> yeah. Um, you, you know, the the concept's been around for a while, uh, especially in, in the glacier monitoring world. Um, this concept of, of monitoring a, an elevation change has, has long been known as the, the geodetic method of measuring glacier volume change. Um, doing it on a full watershed uh, scale for snowpack uh, accurately and quickly hasn't really been possible before about a dozen years ago. Um, and, and we started this concept up right around the time that a commercial LIDAR technology developed to the point where, where that would allow uh, what we're doing now. Um, and, you know, Taylor's right, it's giving us a whole new perspective and, and the ability to to operate a, um, a water management system sort of independent of that comparison to the historic record, um, seeing the snowpack exactly how it is versus uh, relying on, on the assumption that this year is like years in the past. Another way things are changing um, pretty rapidly, you know, we, we talked earlier about the concept of runoff efficiency, you know, how much of the, of the snowpack actually makes it in the reservoir uh, or into the stream channel. One of the things that affects that is, is our forest cover. 
Um, and, and the forests in Colorado are changing quickly uh, due to, to beetle kill, um, as well as, as large fires. Uh, for example, the, uh, the Heyman fire a number of years ago, or just a couple of years ago, the East Troublesome and Cameron Peak fires uh, that burned very intensely, intensely uh, and, and large swaths of, of the watershed. When you change the forest cover dramatically, you affect how much snow gets on the ground and you affect how fast that snowpack melts. So it pretty dramatically changes the snow hydrology uh, of the watershed. Because our laser technology actually maps the forest every time we fly, we get this evolving record of what this, the forest cover looks like. Uh, so in addition to being a, a, a great adaptation tool for for adapting and making our water management uh, forecasting and decision-making more robust under a, a changing watershed conditions. It's in parallel, uh, a tool to be used for adaptive forest management, either responding to those, those beetle and, and fire outbreaks or uh, more proactively um, designing and, and conducting forest management practices like cutting or thinning or, or prescribed fire. Um, so really, I think it's it's an enabling technology for watershed and water management at large um, throughout our, our mountain systems. Cool. Well, yeah, it's super interesting. Uh, I know you mentioned, you know, the podcast doesn't do it justice. Some of these photos and, and data that you've collected, uh, looking at it is, is you got to see it to, to really believe it. But uh, where can... Uh, where can listeners go to check out some of the data? Or can they have access to the data? And if so, where can they access it and more information about the uh, ASO program? Yes, yeah, so the, the ASO data is available on the Airborne Snow Observatory's website. Uh, that's data.airbornesnowobservatories.com. Um, it's a long URL, but you get good at typing it. Um, <laughs> And all the data products uh, to date have been paid for uh, by public entities with, with public data mandates. So all those data are free. You have to create a login to, uh, to download it, but, it, but it's free and, and open access there. Um, additionally, um, uh, some products and other modeling components, as well as some more programmatic stuff, like helping to, uh, to build out this program, um, uh, are available through... Uh, a website that 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 a, a stakeholder group that that we uh, help run in Colorado uh, maintains. It's the the Colorado Airborne Snow Measurement Group or CASM, uh, and it's coloradosnow.org. Uh, and if you go there, there's links to the data page, but also to uh, a bunch more information uh, about how people are putting these data to work. Um, some some outreach and, and education stuff uh, and and um, uh, some other links to, to modeling products, etc. Et uh, so that's a great resource. And, and honestly, that group, uh, which which Taylor has helped co-found uh, the Colorado Airborne Snow Measurement Group, is really a, a, a super interesting and, and, and excellent effort to um, really enhance and, and build out this much needed program throughout the state of Colorado. Cool. Taylor, can you uh, can you tell us a little bit more about this CASM? And I know Denver Water is uh, is very interested in, in snow measurement, but who else is who else cares? And how did this how did this group come about? Yeah, well, the thing we have going for us is that anybody 
who does anything related to water in the Western U.S. cares about snow measurement. Um, so we, uh, once we used ASO for the first time in 2019, and, you know, I mentioned that story of we got that information that really changed our operations. We started talking about that at conferences and whatnot, and then started to have a lot of hallway conversations, really, where people are like, oh, we're interested in this too, but, you know, we have a lot of questions. You know, what, what data do you actually get? How do you use it? How much does it cost? What's the contracting like? Can we partner on it? All these things that we needed, we realized, you know, in order to get a coordinated effort throughout Colorado and then uh, and beyond, um, we, we need to answer a lot of these questions and, and build kind of a stakeholder movement around it. So we started this Colorado Airborne Snow Measurement Program, got a little funding from the state of Colorado to do really a planning project for how can we build out kind of a longer term sustainable program where we can, uh, you know, tap into larger funding where it's got more of an administrative structure to it. And so we just started going through these questions and meeting with this work group, uh, the stakeholder work group. We meet, you know, once a month with this larger group and then we have a smaller planning team. And this planning team, it's, it's a really neat team. Like Jeff mentioned, you know, it really involves people uh, kind of from many geographies across Colorado on both sides of the continental divide, folks from larger and smaller water providers. Um, and just working through these questions of, uh, you know, how can we figure this out really administratively to make sure people have access to this data moving forward that really everybody can be able to benefit from. Um, and so we're still working. We, we don't have the answer yet, uh, but we have more answers than we did a couple of years ago. And we've been, you know, folks have been getting really excited about it and really realizing the value. And, and we're really still working towards tapping into that kind of long-term sustained funding source to be able to to support this moving forward cool well it sounds like a great group and uh, a great technology to get us the data that we need to manage these uh complex water systems and water water resources we have so yeah thanks again for being on are you ready for the uh, end of show quiz now yeah bring it on right it is a three question quiz and uh i wanted to make it topical so this one's on snow so uh you probably do very well but we'll see uh number one you guys can collaborate on this and, and give me your final answer but okay i'm gonna give you the plot of a hallmark movie and you tell me which hallmark movie it is an executive uh examines a rustic lodge in preparation for redevelopment of the of the old lodge but unexpected romance changes her heart during the process uh, is that the plot to Let It Snow, A, uh, B, Winter Christmas, C, A Christmas Detour, or D, Snow Bride? What is that the uh, plot to? Just to clarify, are those actual Hallmark movies? Oh, yeah. Those are Hallmark oh, yeah. movies. Wow. Fascinating. Hmm. Uh, well, I mean, I, I almost feel like the, the Snow Bride is a little bit too on the nose, and I'm wondering if the... If that's just a red herring there. <laughs> what was C again? Uh, okay, C is a Christmas detour. A is Let It Snow. And B is Winter Castle. I'm going to go uh, C. You're going to go C, a Christmas mm. detour. 
Um, I'm going B. I think Winter Castle is the you one. Well, you're both yeah. wrong. It's let it ah. snow. It's let it snow. Those other ones are good, though. Those are quality Hallmark movies. But let's move on to number two. The largest snowflake uh, in diameter measured how many inches across? Is it A, six inches, B, 10 inches, uh, C, 15 inches, or D, 24 inches? And I can tell you it was in 1887. This is according to Guinness Book of World Records. 1887 in Fort Keogh, Montana, wherever that is. 6, 10, 15, or 24 inches? I'll go A, 6. You're going A? You uh, you in agreeing with, with that, Jeff? Yeah, I'll, I'll go with that. Okay. Man, you guys got that one wrong, too. It's 15 inches, which sounds crazy to me. I don't know if I buy that's, that. That's intense. The internet yeah. doesn't lie, so it has to be true. <laughs> All right, you can redeem yourselves on this one. Uh, final question. How many sides or points, they call them, does a snowflake have? This is a multiple choice. This is just uh, you got to fill in the blank. How many sides or points, you know, arms does a snowflake have? I'm going with six. Six? You agreeing with that, Taylor, or you want to alternate? I, I agree with that. Wow, okay. You do know your stuff there. Six is correct. You redeemed yourself for the end of show quiz. And uh, thanks again for being here. Uh, Taylor Winchell from Denver Water and Jeff Deems of Airborne Snow Observatories. This was a a fascinating episode, and I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be here with us today. Yeah, thanks for having us. You bet. And to our listeners, uh, thanks for listening. Thanks to our sponsors, Rocky Mountain Water Environment Association and Colorado Wastewater Utility Council. And if uh, listeners have ideas for shows or comments on on episodes that they've heard, you can email at uh, streamingwateratmail.com and give us show ideas or feedback on shows that we've done. Uh, This has been a great one. So thanks again, and we'll see you next time on Streaming Water Podcast.